The word of the Lord for Matthew 6, 1 through 14. Jesus teaches on the hidden life with God. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. The word of God for the people of God. I'm going to encourage you, even if you don't normally open a copy of the scripture for these brief moments together, I'm going to encourage you to do so this morning simply because of the nature of this sermon as we look in detail at the Sermon on the Mount to give the context for the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. And I think it's appropriate that we once again just bow to our Father in prayer, asking for His blessing. So our Father who gave us these scriptures for our learning, we would ask that you would grant to us now both the desire and the ability to hear them, to read them, to mark them, to comprehend them, and to learn from them in such a way that we inwardly digest them, so that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we would embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, the life which you've given to us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. How many of you have heard the statement, there are no atheists in foxholes? Anyone heard that? Okay, quite a few. The man who is credited with having said that, his name was Father Cummings. He was a chaplain in the Navy during World War II. I read part of his story in the book, The Jersey Brothers, finished that up over the Christmas break. 
Father Bill, as he was known, spoke from experience. He was a prisoner of war who was captured and survived the Bataan Death March in the early months of World War II. And in this setting, it would be inappropriate for me to begin to describe in detail the horrors and the atrocities that men like Father Bill faced in captivity. So I'll skip to the end of Father Bill's story shortly before he died as a prisoner of war. After years of imprisonment and malnourishment, Father Bill and his fellow prisoners had their transport ship mistakenly bombed by the United States Navy. It was not marked as a POW transport ship should have been, according to the Geneva Prisoner of War Convention. So, bombed by their friends and abandoned by their captors during the bombing, surrounded by three to 400 men who had just died due to the bombing, enveloped in the smell of death and disease and filth, Amidst the cries of the wounded and the groans of the barely alive, Father Bill spoke up. He called out for the attention of the thousand men that were left and said, listen to me, and paused and began, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Later, one survivor would write, Father Cummings' prayer floated like a benediction caressing every one of us. David Nash, another prisoner who would survive that ordeal, would say later, his prayer penetrated our very souls. And the author of the Jersey Brothers then recounts what happened next on this prisoner of war ship that had been bombed. As if by celestial intervention... Japanese guards returned, began lowering bandages, bottles of iodine, and buckets of water into the hold where the men were kept. Have you ever wondered why there are no atheists in foxholes or on bombed prisoner of warships? Or to ask it another way, why is prayer universal? Why can you find prayer among the Eskimos and the Algonquin tribes of North America, the Samong tribe of the Andaman Islands in the Indian Ocean? Why can you find prayer among the Aborigines of Australia or among the Eta, Beluga, and Ita tribes of the Philippines, among the Alcaluf tribe of Tierra del Fuego, South America? and even among the pygmies of Gabon, Africa. Why is prayer universal? Well, it's because mankind was hardwired for communion, fellowship, partnership with the one true God. We see that in the earliest places of the Bible where God goes down from heaven and walks in the Garden of Eden to talk with Adam and Eve. And while that partnership, that communion has been broken due to mankind's sin, 
that longing, that desire for partnership, for communion, for fellowship with the divine, it lingers. It's been distorted, for sure. It's been disused. It's been damaged, but it's nonetheless there. So this week, we're going to begin a what will be at least a 10-week series on prayer as we open up the Lord's Prayer as found in the Gospel of Matthew. And as you can see from the subtitle, we're describing prayer as practicing the, uh, the partnership with God, practicing partnership with God. Too often, we view prayer as a task on a checklist, don't we? It's something we have to get done as Christians in order at least to be a good Christian. And if we can check that box, then we feel good about ourselves. And if we can't check it, we feel guilt and shame. And at some point, we may just give up trying. I'll pray when I'm less busy. Or maybe prayer is for people without kids. Or, you know what, I'll just serve the church in other areas. I'll even read my Bible, but I'll just never be good at prayer. My prayer for this series is that God would use it in the life of our church significantly, and that he would use it in your life personally, so that you come to see prayer as a gift and as a delight, that prayer is God's invitation to you to partner with him as he works in the world today, right now. Dalen read for us Matthew 6, verses 1 through 14. This teaching on the prayer, on prayer from our Lord Jesus, comes right in the middle of the most famous sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is considered, even by non-Christians, to be a stunning piece of work. It's held up in the Western world as an ideal to live Towards something that humanity should strive for. But when you begin to read it, the weight of it becomes, frankly, crushing. No human being alive, except for the one who preached this sermon, can live up to the expectations of this sermon outside of Christ. So why is it so compelling? Why is it considered to be so beautiful? Well, for one thing, the sermon speaks to some of our deepest longings. And at the same time, it uncovers just how broken you and I really are. And it casts a vision for a type of spirituality that affects every relationship, every community, every sphere of society, a spirituality that is genuinely good and beautiful inwardly, not merely one that is moral on the outside. So today, I'd like us to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to go into detail section by section, but I think that this exercise will be helpful to elevate the necessity of prayer in living out our partnership with God. In his excellent book on prayer, Paul Miller writes in A Praying Life, by the way, that's a book that I will reference throughout this series and cannot 
more highly recommend to you. He says this about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a blueprint for getting in touch with your self-will and letting God take control. So what Jesus is doing throughout this sermon is he's unveiling our self-will. Miller goes on to encourage us to think about this sermon like a room, an empty room, but a room that is filled with doors on each wall. And each of these doors is labeled with a different way that mankind has attempted to make life work, attempted to solve his problems and make his way through life to cope with life in a fallen, broken world. And each door is a way that we try to gain control of our lives. Each door is one way humanity frequently tries to use an attempt to make life work. But Jesus will have none of it. If we're to live life as God would have us, then we have to see what Jesus is doing in this sermon. He's going to each one of these doors that humanity has opened, and he slams it shut, and he bolts it, and he says, this is not how you live life in my kingdom. He's closing the doors that mankind has tried to use to achieve human power and human glory. He's closing the access points to the way from below, not the way of the Lamb. He's closing the doors in order to re reveal what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And the funny thing is that even in Jesus' day, religious leaders had sanctioned the use of some of those doors, or at least said in some circumstances, that door and maybe that door and that door, you can use them, at least in some limited fashion. But in these cases, Jesus will say to his audience, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So look with me at chapter 5. What are these doors? What are the labels on these doors that Jesus is going to close? Well, look at verses 21 to 26. Jesus closes the door labeled anger. Jesus says, you've heard it said that to our ancestors do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to to hellfire. So if that's the case, if, if you're offering your gift on the altar, if you're headed to worship and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. Leave it there. Go be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Jesus closes the door labeled anger. And then in verses 27 to 30, Jesus slams the door shut on uninhibited sexual freedom or expression. He says in verse 27, you've heard it that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right hand or right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off 
throw it away. It's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. He shuts the door on, on anger, on unhimited sexual freedom, and then he closes the door on easy out marriages. Look at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Then Jesus is going to close the door on power and control, two means by which we attempt to exert our influence on those around us whether that's through manipulation or empty promises. Look at verse 33. Again, you've heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. So let your yes mean yes, and let your no mean no. Anything more than this, he says, is from the evil one. But then Jesus closes the door on revenge, even emotional revenge through relational distance. He does this in verses 38 to 42. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is then now going to turn his attention to the common practice of enemizing others. And he closes the door on culturally acceptable treatment of real or perceived enemies. Verse 43, you've heard it, say, heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Which was the ultimate in throwing shade in Jesus' culture. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are, you going, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Maybe as you read those statements of Jesus, they're a bit striking and uncomfortable. Or maybe you're sitting here looking through what he's just said, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm in pretty decent shape according to what Jesus has just said. Well, Jesus won't let us get off the hook. He begins to address our religious lives, which are which is appropriate for us to consider. We who find ourselves in a Sunday morning gathering on a uh, in a church worship service, but spirituality can be a means for seeking advancement in people's eyes, right? Spiritual ritual and even church attendance can be a means by which we try to gain power. 
or respect or glory. And Jesus says, don't go there. In the passage Dalen read for us, he closes the door labeled public spirituality. He instructs his followers to give in secret so as not to be seen, to pray in private so as not to be observed, and to fast, but to pretend like they're not fasting. And then in verses 19 to 24, Jesus closes the door on finding our security in money. The old King James Version uses the word mammon. You cannot worship God and mammon. Marva Dawn, who is a scholar with a PhD from Notre Dame and is a faithful follower of Jesus, in her research she's discovered that mammon was an ancient Hebrew name for the God of money and wealth. She goes on to say that when you call it the God Mammon, you know it's a principality and a power. It's not an inert substance. There's a power behind it. And in our country that's been blessed with incredible financial security and resources, each of us in some way is tempted to worship the God of Mammon. So Jesus walks up to that door and he slams it shut. For life in the kingdom of God, worshiping mammon is out of the question. But then look at verses 25 to 34 of chapter 6. Not only can we not worship money, we can't even worry about money, according to Jesus. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you not even Solomon was arrayed in all his splendor adorned like one of these. Money can't be how we cope in life, and even worrying about money is off limits. And he's broadening that out to anxiety in general. Isn't anxiety in our culture one of the means by which we are told to live life? One of the means by which we make life work? So as we come to the end of chapter 6 of this incredibly crushing sermon... We're enlightened, right? We begin to see what it's like to live life in the kingdom of God. We've been told by the Son of God himself what it's like. So we begin to feel really spiritual. And we now have the benchmarks by which we can judge how others are doing in living the life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But as Miller says, Even as we begin to judge others, Jesus himself isn't done. And he closes the door on this self-righteous comparison and judgmentalism. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you'll be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure that you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye. Hey, you've got, you've got something a little crusty there in the corner of your eye. Let me get that out for you while you've got a telephone pole poking out of your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So what now? All of the doors that you and I frequently use to live life in a broken, fallen world, all of the doors that reveal our self-will and our distorted desires, all of the doors that move us towards power and control and glory, Jesus has shut. They're not available to the followers of Jesus. So I want you to do an exercise with me, okay? And I need you to stand to do this exercise, okay? Go ahead and stand with me. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to imagine that you are in this gathering space here. Take all the chairs out of the room, remove the curtains, remove every other person. It's just you alone in this gathering space. Against each of the four walls are two or three or four doors with different labels. Anger, sex and pleasure, manipulation, control, revenge, emotional distance, animizing others, public spirituality, money, anxiety, judging others, and self-righteousness. Do you see those doors? Do you have them in your mind's eyes? So, which label door found in this Sermon on the Mount are you most frequently drawn towards? Which of these doors do you most frequently attempt to use? Which label door is your close second? And now imagine that each of these open doors is slowly being swung shut and locked. Keep your eyes closed. If we're living life in this room, a room with dozens of doors that we have each used to varying degrees in our life to make life work, and Jesus has just walked the perimeter of the room, he shut every single door, he's bolted them, and he says, you can't use this door anymore in my kingdom then how are we to live life? How are we to make life work? How are you going to function usefully in the kingdom of heaven without these access points? Okay, open your eyes. Regain your sense of where you are. You can be seated. So let me ask the question again. How are you and I going to function usefully in this kingdom when Jesus has shut all the doors? Well, Jesus has an answer to that question. And his answer is to take the roof off of the room. Jesus' answer is to talk to your Father in heaven. That is how we operate 
and live life in the kingdom of Jesus. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. So in this masterpiece sermon, Jesus places prayer at the two most crucial points, directly in the center where he instructs on prayer and what to say, that's the Lord's prayer, and here at the very end where he simply motivates us to pray. The emphasis on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount is intentional. The sermon cannot be lived out in our own strength. It was never intended to be lived out in our own strength. No human being, including Gandhi, who made it his life's purpose to follow this sermon, can fulfill Jesus' words apart from partnering with the almighty triune God through prayer. And so Jesus ends this sermon with a series of warnings. There's no other way to live the Christian life. Oh, there are other ways to live life to be sure, but there's no other way that will be life-giving, no other way that will lead you to a life of flourishing now and eternally, except complete and total dependence upon the triune God. And that is the message of chapter 7, verses 13 to 26. So church, the question before us as we enter this series together In the words of Jesus, will we choose to build our life upon the rock of the words of Jesus, taking him at his word, refusing to grab the crowbar and try to pry open the doors that he shut? Will we rely on God in prayer so that we don't try these doors? Will we partner with God in prayer while he is actively at work in his kingdom and in our lives today. So let's take just a few brief moments here. We've walked through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's like make a couple of points of application that will propel us into the rest of this series together. Application number one. In Matthew 6, 1 through 14, Jesus generously assumes that we will pray. And let's be honest, that's a very generous assumption for us in our busy world, isn't it? There are so many other things, practical things, 
things that we can actually see a result immediately that's pulling at our attention. But what does Jesus say? Chapter 6, verse 5, whenever you pray. Verse 6, when you pray. Verse 7, when you pray. Verse 9, pray like this. What is Jesus doing? He's assuming generously that you and I will pray. So can we just say it without wallowing in the guilt and the shame of it? Our prayerlessness, my prayerlessness, your prayerlessness this week is sin. Now, it might not be willful negligence. It might be contextual prayerlessness due to what's going on in your life. It might even be humanly excusable. But it's sinful. Jesus, the Son of God, spent regular times away from the chaos and the crowd and the busyness praying to his Father. So how come we think we can make it a day without communing with the triune God? And here he gives us a model for prayer that is beautifully economical, approximately 60 words in the original language but it's also able to expand to encompass the specifics of what you face today, this week, this month. So for a moment, consider again your feelings of helplessness being in a room with multiple doors, all of them shut and locked, and you have no way out. Wouldn't that feeling of helplessness eventually lead you to holler out for help? What just came to mind is Barney Fife in an Andy Griffith show, once again locking the jail cell door behind him while he's cleaning it with the keys on the desk across the room. And his only alternative is to begin to shout, help, help. Friends, that's how we ought to live life. The keys in our pockets don't work. They were never made to work. We were made to cry out, help, Father, help. Number two, Jesus graciously encourages us towards prayer. He does so by reminding us to whom we pray. Our Father sees our hidden life. Our Father rewards us when we cultivate our hidden life with Him. Our Father knows our needs before we even pray, and our Father answers with good gifts to His children. Unfortunately, one of the most comforting realities of who God is, the fact that He's sovereign, becomes one of our biggest excuses as to why we don't pray. When in reality, God's sovereignty and knowledge are encouragements towards prayer, not excuses or arguments against prayer. I wonder if we have any cynics in the room today. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, otherwise I'd have to raise my hand with you. I can tend to be very cynical. And maybe when you hear a public official say after some tragedy that our thoughts and prayers are with the victims, maybe the inner cynic in you rolls your eyes and you feel the need to comment on how 
useless and empty that sentiment is? Could it be that you have become cynical towards prayer? Could it be that you believe more in a clock-winding God who set the universe in motion, set it down, and walked away? A God who's no longer active, intimately, personally connected to the world right now? Could it be that your perception of God is more in line with the ancient Greek idea of the fates? Perhaps you heard sung over some station during the Christmas season, through the years we all will be together should the fates allow. And maybe you could quite easily swap out the word God there, but you treat him more like the ancient conception of the fates. Whatever will be, will be. Prayer really doesn't matter. Or maybe you used to pray, but you've just given up on prayer. It just doesn't seem effective to you. As Malcolm Geith says in his book of Advent poems, sometimes as we look at the brokenness of our world and our circumstances, despair is perhaps the easier and certainly the lazier option. Maybe as you look at your life, despair seems quite appropriate. But here Jesus graciously speaks to our cynicism and our despair. And he says, prayer matters. Prayer is vital. Prayer is partnership with God. Our Father hears. So for those of us who are deeply committed to the sovereignty of God to the point of not believing we have agency in this life, or for those of us who are tired of praying or lacking faith, believing prayer is a waste of time, Jesus kindly speaks to us with gentle words, graciously calling us out of our cynicism, calling us out of our despair, calling us out of our unbelief to return once again to the character of God. God hears, God sees, God answers, God responds generously. Number three, Jesus kindly models how to pray. The beauty of this prayer is that you don't have to actually understand every nuance of each phrase to pray it, but you can pray each phrase in faith to your Father. So I'd actually like to encourage our entire church family to memorize the Lord's Prayer if you don't already have it memorized. And from now on, on Sundays, we will frequently pray together at some point in our service the Lord's Prayer, surrounded by prayer in our own words. This prayer is not a magic formula. It's not been given to, or rather it was given to a group of people that would have been very familiar with set prayers. They would have used the Psalms specifically throughout the day to pray to God in different ways and at different times. So this week, when you want to pray but don't know what to pray, our Lord has given you a model for prayer. It's entirely appropriate to pray that back to Jesus. Or you can take each phrase and riff off of it, if you will. When you pray for God to provide your daily bread, what is the bread that you need today? 
For some in this room, it may be the food for the next meal. That's quite possible. Or maybe the bread you need today is the emotional capacity to get through another taxing day. Or maybe the bread for you is energy for parenting or for that big work meeting that's coming up. Or maybe it's finances for the next bill. But take it to your father. Give me this day, Father, my daily bread. What are the temptations you know you'll face this week? Call them out before God. Ask him to keep you from the places and mindsets that would lead you towards temptation. And do that for each of these phrases as you bow before your father and your father who sees in secret sees you and hears you. And just as foolish as it would be for you to give a child a stone when he asks for a piece of bread or a rattlesnake when she asks for a fish, do you not think your heavenly father who gave his only begotten son to die on a cross for you, do you not think in him he will freely give you all things? He is our father in heaven. So prayer is how we practice partnership with God. So in light of that reality, will you join me, join with me to pray right now the Lord's Prayer together as we close? The words will be on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.